0: Bullseye with Jesse Thorne is a production of MaximumFun.org and is distributed by NPR.
1: It's Bullseye, I'm Jesse Thorne. Leslie Manville is an actor. She got her start on TV in the 70s. At the time, she was a teenager in England. Then she had a career in theater. She's been in many plays with the prestigious Royal Shakespeare Company. She's also known for her work with the director Mike Lee. She starred in some of his best movies, like Secrets and Lies, All or Nothing, and Another Year. These days, you can catch her on the newest season of The Crown. She plays Princess Margaret. When Leslie Manville and I talked in 2019, she had just wrapped up the third and final season of the BBC show, Mum. In it, she plays Kathy, a mom in her 50s, living out in the suburbs. The show begins with Kathy getting over the recent death of her husband. The tone of the show and Leslie's performance are both grounded, though sometimes she is surrounded by madness. A Lot of Mum is about Leslie's character's relationship with her best friend Michael. They have significant romantic chemistry, but Leslie's son, Jason, isn't into the idea of the two of them. Hooking up. He's still protective of his late father, and he gets a bit jealous when he notices there might be something going on between his mom and his dad's pal. In this clip, Kathy and Jason are chatting after a dinner party wraps up. Kathy has maybe had too many drinks.
0: A little bit giggly, wasn't
2: I? <laughs> Just a bit. <laughs> and then I fell asleep. Oh, you were fast asleep on the sofa. Oh, God. <laughs> well, actually... Last night, the really funny thing was you, uh, you fell asleep on Michael. How do you mean? Well, we were watching the film and you fell asleep with your head on Michael's shoulder. (laughs) (laughs) did I? Yeah, not like you. Oh dear. (laughs) Everyone saw it. You think Michael would have moved or something?
1: But he just sat
2: there. Did he? Yeah.
1: Weird. Well, Leslie, I'm so happy to have you on Bullseye. Thank you for coming in and doing this.
2: You're
0: welcome. Thank you.
1: Uh, One of the things that I enjoy the most about Mum is you and Peter Mullen, the protagonists of the show, both uh, radiate Kindness and Warmth. And it's a very muted, uh, quiet show for a sitcom. Mm -hmm. Uh, And everyone else is a monster. (laughs) Just... (laughs) Act like monsters. <laughs> yes. Yeah.
0: <laughs> yeah, they do. I think that was the point that, you know, they you'd have this calm centre to it with these people that the audience can really relate to and particularly with Cathy, see the other people around her um through through her eyes and their ridiculousness and their their characteristics, which sometimes are very challenging. <laughs> but yeah, there is it, it is this sweet sweet couple. Who are, have slowly over the three seasons that we've done fallen in love with each other, and uh, it's a very nice love story.
1: Are you as patient as your character, Kathy, on mum? Hell
0: no. <laughs> <laughs> I'm I'm far more judgmental than Kathy is. Yeah, no, I I find it hard to button my mouth. I really do in all walks of my life. So, um, uh, I mean. There are a lot of similarities. You know, I I hope people think I'm kind and all of those things, but patient, no.
1: You left general education in your like mid-teens, right? 15 Mm. or 16, something like that?
0: 15, yeah.
1: Had you already then decided to be an actor?
0: No, I was a very good classical singer. And since the age of about eight or nine, I I was trained classically. And I, I really did have an exceptional voice. And I I think if I'd have done taken that course which would have been a very natural course to take I would have moved into opera easily.
1: How did you figure out that that was the case when you were eight or nine years old was it like singing in church or something like that?
0: Well I did actually go to a church school but it yeah and so I did sing in the choir and I did sing a lot of solos my father had a very good voice so there was always singing at home and my middle sister sang as well so there was a lot of singing going on and uh when I went to have singing lessons, you know, the teachers that I had were getting me to sing more complicated stuff and Mozart. And so it it became apparent early on that I had this good voice. But, you know, I didn't grow up in, um, a middle-class household. We were working class. We weren't poor, but we were working class. My father did all sorts of jobs and my mother was, uh, stayed at home and looked after the three of us. Um, But nobody really, well, nobody did take me to the opera. So I made a really ill-informed decision that it was boring, having not seen it ever, having never seen an opera in my life.
1: I'm going to be frank with you. I worked at the San Francisco (coughs) Opera when I was a teenager. I was 16, 17 years old. Mm Mm-hmm. I don't think you would have found it not boring at the time. I can't promise you, well, based on my I'm, experience as a 16-year-old at the opera. There
0: must be a lot of six, 15, 16-year-olds that do see it and do want to go and study it, because by the time them. they're 20, they're doing it. But, you know, I, no, I mean, for me, you know, it, was, um, it, it just wasn't rock and roll for me, you know, at all. <laughs> so I thought, well, look, I have got this good voice. I could use it. I could do musicals. So... I sort of said to my mum and dad, look, I grew up in Brighton, which is on the south coast of England. I said, I really want to go to a stage school in London, which is a kind of odd place where you can can go from four um, and you do general education in the morning and then singing, dancing, acting in the afternoon. Well, I left school at 15 to go to this stage school uh, with the idea that, I would continue my education in the mornings and I did. Um, but the education was not good. Uh, so I didn't end up sitting any exams or doing any of the things that the friends I'd left behind in Brighton were doing. So I actually don't have a qualification to my name. So thank God I can act. But, um, um the singing and dancing and acting teaching was very good and I learned to dance with a great choreographer called Arlene Phillips. Um, I was singing and I met a really good acting teacher who I'm still friends with now. And I was only there for about nine months or so and then I left and my first job was a musical in the West End directed by John Schlesinger, the late film director who was making a very rare foray into a musical theatre. And then I did all sorts of odd odd jobs. I was presenting a bit. I was doing pantomime, which is a thing we have in England. It's a Christmas show. Um, I was doing a bit of acting here and there, but it was mostly musical stuff. I did a lunchtime soap for a while, which was really interesting learning curve because we shot most of it outside on on proper single camera film, which was quite rare for television. Anyway, that said, uh, cut to six years later and I had a very happy six years just bumbling around, doing lots of different jobs, enjoying myself, earning a bit of money and then I met Mike Lee and then it all kind of changed really because um, we just got on like a house on fire and he made me see that I could play people that weren't like me and that made me more happy than anything, and I loved the way he worked and the fact that, you know, to get to an end result of a script, we'd get to that point by many improvisations and creating characters and all of that. And I just loved it, and it made sense to me. I thought, yeah, if I'm going to play somebody real, I'd, I need to, I need to create them from scratch and fill out all their background and all of this stuff. So it really it really um got into my bones and working with him then at that very formative time it was like uh, the first film I did with him was made for the BBC and it was called Grown Ups. And when it went out, despite the fact I'd been acting for about six or seven years by then, it was like I was a new kid on the block because the kind of work I'd been doing before that nobody'd really noticed. But suddenly here I was with this prestigious director and doing this great film that was on um, on, on the BBC. Um, and, you know, after that, it it just... It, it, my career just got more and more interesting and went from strength to strength.
1: We'll be back in just a second. It's Bullseye from MaximumFun.org and NPR. <music> Welcome back to Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. I'm talking with the great Leslie Manville. You might know her from the films of director Mike Lee. She starred in Another Year, Vera Drake, and All or Nothing. She also received an Academy Award nomination for her part in The Phantom Thread. These days, you can see her on the fifth season of The Crown, in which she plays Princess Margaret. When we talked in 2019, she just wrapped up the final season of the TV show, Mum. Let's get back into our chat. It's, it seems to me like a lot to, do, to like go off and do all that stuff on your own as a teenager you know, particularly if you don't already have a lot of grounding in that world. I mean, having mm. grown up outside London in a non-show business family. Mm. I have a buddy that grew up in Sherman Oaks, California here. When I got to college and became my friend, his parents are screenwriters and his his uh neighbor was his his neighbor as a child was uh Brian Cranston. <laughs> and to him, working in show business is normal. Yes. <laughs> Um, and, uh, he still does. He does now. But like, I went to an art school as a teenager. I, I couldn't conceive that it could be a thing you did for your life. Like maybe I could kind of imagine regional theater. Mm. You know what I mean?
0: Yeah, I do. Well, I mean, when I went to stage school, I, I really just loved it. I mean, I was still living at home in Brighton and it's about an hour's commute on the train every day. So I was traveling backwards and forwards. But I loved it. I felt I'd found my groove. I mean, I was quite shy. I mean, there were a lot of girls there that were very um, uh, jazz hands and loved performing and they were very big characters. And I wasn't any of those things. But I always was. The quiet one, really. Um, but I suppose when I did feel... Well, no, I know that when I did feel um, a bit lost and a bit alone was when I started working. And I wasn't working in London, which I was beginning to get to know, and I wasn't working near home in Brighton. I was all over the place, all over the country. And um, I, I was really quite alone then, and that was difficult. Um you know 16 years old fending for myself there was a sh- a program i did in the southwest of england uh which was like a a kids show but i was presenting it so i'd film all these extracts during the week you know going to a zoo talking to the zoo keeper and then we'd go into the studio once a week and we'd record the show live i don't know if you have a comparison show here but that was the nature of the show it's kind of a magazine program for kids and um, I loved doing the show, but nobody there looked after me at all. And, I, and, and in hindsight, it was shocking that nobody took care of me. And I was staying in a really not very nice hotel, um, which back in the, when was this then? This was the mid late 70s. It was all a bit seedy and it was full of traveling salesmen in terrible smelly suits and blokes and men who would look at me at breakfast and it was really not very comfortable and there were no mobile phones cell phones there was there were no tvs in the room I mean it was basic and I was lonely and finding places to eat on my own in the evenings when restaurants were not really a thing and certainly not 16 year old girls going out on their own to eat but you know I did it so I suppose I kind of it gave me backbone and it gave me an absolute sense of myself. And um, I think that it's, it's, it's been really good that I had all of that. I mean, it wasn't always great at the time, but it's, it's kind of made me, you know, I, I don't, I don't take any mess from anybody. And, and I know that those years of my life were really formative, you know, until I got in my mid twenties and, you know, got, got myself somewhere to live in London and got more settled, you know, those early days of traveling around so young and were, were hard. So what
1: were the circumstances of you meeting the filmmaker Mike Lee, with whom you've you've worked so many times in the decades since?
0: Well, the circumstances were quite, kind of odd. I was doing a play in London for the Royal Shakespeare Company. I wasn't doing Shakespeare because they don't just do Shakespeare. I was doing a, a new modern play. And Mike had been asked to go to the Royal Shakespeare and do a play. Uh, But for various reasons, he had to cast it, economic reasons, I guess, he had to cast it from within the current company. Um, And I don't think I was an obvious candidate. You know, I, I, as I said, prior to meeting him, I was kind of a one-trick pony.
1: I read him describe what you had done to that point as playing nice ladies like yourself or something like that yeah no
0: he's absolutely right that's that is the bottom line i played um you know sweet nice looking girls squeaky clean and that was me anyway i he asked me to do this play and i don't think he thought i was going to be a great mike lee candidate really i think he thought it was going to be a bit hard work with me but once we started doing it as I said just now, I just thought this was amazing and I loved it and I was good at it. And he was the first person, after being an actor for about seven years by that point, he said to me, you're really very good at this. And the sense of achievement that I had and the thrill of him saying that to me was, um, was uh, huge. So uh, the play actually for reasons which we don't need to waste time talking about now, actually never happened. So um, he said, well, look, I think you better come and work with me again. And and then we did, uh, in the days when he was mostly making films for the BBC and Channel 4, we made Grown Ups.
1: Now, he is very well known for his unusual method of making films and theatre, which often involves developing... Uh, characters and a story with the Mm. cast Mm. um, through, in part, improvisation. Mm -hmm. Had you improvised before you started working with him?
0: Only at at stage school a little bit, Um, but not really, not extensively. And it was never to do with it coming out of a character that you'd created. I mean, when you work with Mike, you don't just kind of day one start improvising. I mean, you spend many weeks creating a character that you're just talking about and chewing over with each, you know, each one-to-one, and then you start improvising, and even then it's on your own. You you know, you don't start suddenly improvising with people. So I, you know, with him, I kind of realized that, of course, I always used to find improvising without Mike um, a bit of a waste of time because... And subsequent people that I worked with, after having done a few jobs with Mike, used to think, oh, you're good at improvising. Come on, let's try and make this scripted play that doesn't work very well at this point. Let's improvise it and see what... And of course, it's nonsense because all you're doing is thinking what to say. So nothing can be trusted. Nothing's coming from an organic place. You're just trying to think of what to say. And of course, with him, with Mike, what's imperative is that... You thoroughly and wholly create these characters and then very slowly. I mean, you're just, you know, a whole day just walking around as them, not saying anything. Then you might just, potter, you know, you have mock-ups of wherever they live or where they work. And you slowly, slowly, slowly start to bring them to life and eventually... There'll be other characters in the piece that he'll bring you together with that you might be related to or having a friendship or marriage with, whatever. And you fill out all of that backstory and then you'll start to do some improvisations, which, but there's never any pressure. In fact, it's absolutely crucial that you don't try and make the improvisations interesting because then he's not gonna he, you you're not gonna discover anything and I've done very long improvisations with him um where not a lot happens but you but through those he starts to see where tensions are where where relationships um are, are floundering or where a relationship is good you know I've done four five six hour improvisations where you might just an hour of that might be spent with your characters sitting watching T V and not saying anything.
1: That's terrifying to me.
0: Yeah, well, yeah, but you haven't done the work that precedes it to get you to the place where Well you're you being actually presumptive, but
1: in this case you're right.
0: Comfortable. Comfortable. <laughs> <laughs> but you know, it but that's but but that of course, if somebody said to me tomorrow, Okay, we're gonna do this piece and you're gonna be there, so let's start improvising, I'd be terrified because what that is what I was saying just now. All you're doing is thinking of what to say. Whereas if there's no pressure of being, to be entertaining, it, it, it kind of takes care of itself because of the work you've done.
1: We'll wrap up with actor Leslie Manville after a quick break. When we return, we'll talk about her work in the brilliant Mike Lee film Another Year. It's Bullseye from MaximumFun.org and NPR. I'm Iffy Wadiway, the host of Maximum Film. I'm Alonzo Duraldi, also the host of Maximum Film. And
2: I'm Drea Clark, yet another host
1: of Maximum Film. Every week, we hosts Huddle Up, usually with an illustrious guest, and we talk about films. We have film news. We have film quizzes. We answer your film questions. It's like the maximum amount of film talk. That's why we call it Maximum Film. Maximum
2: Film! film. Maximum Film, the movie podcast that's not just a bunch of straight white guys. New episodes weekly on MaximumFun.org.
1: This is Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. My guest is Leslie Manville of Phantom Thread, Another Year, and the latest season of The Crown. Let's get back into our chat. I want to play a scene from a Mike Lee movie. Uh, in which you start, And I'm going to be honest, we've only got a certain amount of time here. I could just play clips of your performances in Mike Lee movies for the rest of the time we're here. <laughs> I would be happy about that. I'd be perfectly glad to just sit here and enjoy your performances in Mike Lee movies. But I we picked one called uh, Another Year that came out mm, about a decade ago. Yes. And I was walking back to my car after having eaten lunch uh, today. And I was thinking to myself... And this is, you know, don't ask me to defend it, but I do sincerely believe it. I was thinking to myself, I don't know that I have ever seen a more... I can't even meet your gaze while I say this, but it's the honest (laughs) truth. I don't know that I've ever seen a more compelling acting performance in a film than your performance in this film.
0: Well, thank you very much.
1: Um, Which I I found just to be a a breathtaking movie. So in this movie, basically, there is this uh, couple named... Tom and Jerry, who are uh, in, like, late middle age. Um, and one of Jerry's co-workers is Mary, who who you play. Mm. And she is spending time with them and trying to put up a facade of, you know, of mm. Um But it is very... It, it is very clear as the film unfolds that she is just desperately sad and lonely and mm. um, probably an alcoholic.
0: Oh, definitely, yeah.
1: And um, so I, I just want to play this scene from the movie. So this is uh, this is my guest, uh, as Mary, talking about her taste in men over a glass of wine with <laughs> Jerry. And Mary says that she's never dated a man who would cook for her.
2: You could put an ad in the paper. <laughs> Chef wanted. yeah. Chef stroke boyfriend required for gorgeous girl. No, mature woman with cat. <laughs> <laughs> no, mature-ish. We don't want to put them off, do we? <laughs> oh, it's really lovely the way you and Tom do everything together. We're very lucky. Yeah, you are. But you deserve it. You're both such lovely people. Oh, oops, me <laughs> Yeah, Saint Jerry. <laughs> No, but I'm really comfortable with where I am in my life. As you know, I've got my lovely little garden flat. I've got a good job. I've got my health, touch wood. I've got my independence. I've got anybody telling me what to do. I mean, don't get me wrong. It's not all rosy. I have good days and bad days Mm -hmm. like everyone else, Mm -hmm. don't I? But hey. Hmm.
1: It is, um, I think it would be very easy for your performance or the film to just let her be pathetic or just let her be a joke. And it's a funny movie too.
0: Mm, yeah.
1: And, I and it doesn't. And I wonder what it was like to spend all that time developing and then embodying a character who is in some ways just defined by just crippling loneliness.
0: Yeah. It, it was, um, I, I've, it's, I think that film um, stayed with me. I don't mean on a day-to-day basis. I mean, I didn't go home and um, cry into my pillow because I was playing Mary. But that woman stayed with me, her predicament, her her pain. That, because so many people said to me uh, when they'd seen the film that they'd been like that at times in their life, or they knew people that were like that, or people that were like that and were still like that. And um, and I, I sort of think that, she, for me, she was um, the most complete piece of work that I did with Mike, really. Um, when we were doing um, what became big, in, what big parts of the film, like, for example, the scene when she arrives late to their barbecue.
2: We've saved you some food, Mary. I hope it's still warm. Oh, thanks, Jerry. Oh, yeah, I'll be fine. eat some fresh if you like. Oh, no, Tom, don't worry about me. So you didn't get arrested then, Mary? No, I didn't, Joe. was very kind to me, actually. What CC is your car? What do you mean? How big's the engine? Oh, I don't know. Um, it's about this big, I think. <laughs> 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 What's so funny? Don't be cruel. It means how powerful is it, Mary? How many cubic centimetres is it? Oh! You should know that. Oh, on the back there's numbers, like 1.6 or 1.9. Oh, yeah, I know. Yeah, well, That's boy stuff, isn't it? <laughs> it's not <laughs> important. No, Tanya. I think I'm going to have a cigarette before I eat this. Excuse me, I'll get out of your way. Shall we take Isaac over there? OK. Oh, well, I, I thought you wouldn't mind because we're outside. No, we don't, Mary. You carry on. You're all right, you're all right.
0: And we did that as a major improvisation that lasted the best part of the day, really. And so, you know, for Mary, it would start in her flat, getting ready, you know, all of that. And I remember I remember this very well, and I don't remember lots of things, but this I remember very well. That she, Mary used to listen to a lot of sad, dusty Springfield, and she used to sing along to it quite well, which was good because, you know... I'm, I mean I've got a bit of a voice on me and I thought actually I'm going to use it Mary can have quite a good voice it's and she's belting out this and she she sort of loved the loneliness in a perverse way you know she she loved singing the dusty springfield and have and crying and using that as an excuse to go and get another glass of wine and even though she knew she had to drive across London, because then she arrives in this car that she's got, and the car is a—you know—everything's chaos with her. Chaos. Nothing is ordered, and and that's really not like me. I—I'd I, never played somebody drunk before, um, and we did a few scenes where she was she was drunk, and that, oddly enough, it was the only time. And I'd shared this with Mike. I said, "The really." thing i'm finding really tricky is that uh, normally you know you do the scene you come out of character you go and have your lunch and you come back and you do it again whatever but when i was doing the drunk mary i i sort of needed to stay in that zone i found going in and out of drunk very tricky so um he said that's all right you know just we'll find a little place for you to go and keep it keep it on the go and i did and it and it really helped but there was a lot about playing her. And, and I think over the years, some people have misinterpreted this, that it meant that, you know, I was lonely or I was, um, you know, in some sort of pain. And we've all been in pain in our lives and lonely at times. But I I really knew how to play her. I brought a lot to those scenes when she was desperate and and it kind of was an extension. It was like going to places beyond where I, Leslie, had been, but I knew the route. So yeah, I, I if 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 I had a we have a show in England called Desert Island Discs. You might be familiar with my Desert Island Disc of my move. My movies would be Mary, <laughs> but that's because there's something so wonderful about her as well that that she isn't just. Totally pitiful, and she puts on a. She wants. To, she wants to present something to the world that is positive. You know, she hasn't completely thrown in the towel. She clings to. She's going to claw herself back up. You know, or try to.
1: And she's beloved too. I mean, like that's that's mm. another thing about the film is that she wouldn't be there even in that state if those friends didn't love her,
0: yes I mean they do they do eventually get rather irritated because she's interrupting the the kind of order and family stability of their life you know here's this tornado that come turns up on a Sunday um, and and behaves quite badly at times especially towards their son and his his new girlfriend
1: you know one of the themes that that movie Shares with Mum is kind of I- engaging with the question of what are the possibilities and lack of possibilities of late middle age.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah,
1: like that. Uh, another year feels like this. This story of contrasts of people, these people who are engaging that part of their lives in very different ways. Mm. You know, Mum is about. Someone who is, who has both like learned to be generous with everyone around her and is also um, be- being generous with herself about starting a, a new thing, having lost her husband. Mm-hmm. And another year feels like a really deep, at least felt to me when I watched it, like a very deep engagement of the tragedy of mm. late middle age, which is that you don't always get to make a new choice. You don't always get to open up a new road.
0: No, no. I mean, obviously, Mary in another year was about 10 years ago. So I was 10 years younger. So it, there was something more desperate about Mary. Um, I mean, you're right. Those comparisons are absolutely spot on. But she was, you know, the the ship had sailed to have a child and she was just an un, a different personality. You know, she she desperately wanted to cling on to her youth and her looks and you know she dressed some would say some would not but she she probably dressed a bit inappropriately for her age and she wasn't very sophisticated she wasn't embracing um getting older and she which she she could have done you know she was she was not a bad looking woman she was just desperately clinging on and really totally Uh, misjudging the situation with her friend's son, who she seriously thought she could get into some kind of relationship and that he he would find her attractive and want to be with her. And it's not that she wasn't attractive, but it was that there was no way this stable young man was going to be attracted by this totally chaotic alcoholic, Desperate woman. And what's different about Kathy and Mum is that she has had a full and fulfilled life. She's she was married to a man who she had a good relationship with. She had love. She's had a child. She does um, a nice job. She works in a children's school. You know, that it's all gentle positive things. Um, so her re-evaluation of her life post the death of her husband um, is is a very different scenario. But what I love about Mum and what's I think one of the reasons why it's been received so enthusiastically and brilliantly, certainly in the UK uh, thus far, is that it it looks at people over fifty, over sixty, who are just Forming a love affair, you know that that part of their lives is not shut off and done with, and it's. I, I think a lot of women are very happy to see something like that portrayed. That they feel they're being represented, and also that you know, as I've said in the press before, in a slightly exaggerated way, because I'm trying to make a point in a guardian interview recently, I kind of in a rather extravagant way said, I want to go out and dance till three in the morning and get drunk and drink too much and have sex, you know. Which is kind of, people have taken a bit literally. But um <laughs> I'm sort of making a point that, you know, just because you are over fifty, it doesn't mean that those feelings stop and that you don't, you know, you don't want a good time, you don't want to misbehave. You know, some people think, oh, well, you're a 50-year-old woman. Should you really be dancing and getting sweaty and flirting? Hell, yes, you should. And if you want to, you can do it. Uh, I mean, Kathy's not like that. Obviously, she's much more well-behaved and she wouldn't um, She wouldn't even think that she would go out and uh, get drunk. She'd probably stay at home and get drunk, but she might not want to go dancing like I do. But it's just, you know what I'm saying. I'm just, isn't it great that... Um, like Fleabag is about a woman of a very different generation, but who's who's the great thing about that show is that she doesn't care, you know that that anything goes, and that and that the show has shown a woman of that age not caring. Um, it's just breaking some gla- glass ceilings, really.
1: Well, Leslie Manville, thank you so much for being on Bullseye. It's so so great to get to talk to you.
0: Thank you. It's been really nice talking to you too.
1: Leslie Manville from 2019. You can catch her in the most recent season of The Crown. That's on Netflix. The British sitcom in which she starred, Mum, is on Hoopla and Britbox, among other platforms. And hey, I'm going to drop a recommendation here. If you've never seen Another Year, it is just an absolute character masterpiece. It is funny and sad and sweet. It's just an incredible movie and uh, Leslie is extraordinary in it. So, go rent that. That's the end of another episode of Bullseye. Bullseye is created from the homes of me and the staff of Maximum Fun in and around greater Los Angeles, California. Although, I will say today, I was in our office at MacArthur Park because my daughter got obsessed with the idea of buying a bootleg DVD. So I bought for $2 on MacArthur Park a bootleg copy of Star Wars The Last Jedi. Uh, Ryan Johnson, if you're listening, my apologies, I owe you $2. Our show is produced by Speaking Into Microphones. Our senior producer is Kevin Ferguson. Our producers are Jesus Ambrosio and Richard Roby. Our production fellows at Maximum Fun are Tabitha Myers and Brianna Paz. We get help booking from Mara Davis. Our interstitial music is by DJ W, a.k.a. Dan Wally. Our theme song is Huddle Formation by the band The Go Team. Thanks to The Go Team, thanks to their label, Memphis Industries. Bullseye is on YouTube, Twitter, and Facebook. You can follow us in any of those places. We will share our interviews with you, and we do hope that if you heard something you enjoyed on this week's show, you'll share it with somebody. I think that's about it. Just remember, all great radio hosts have a signature sign-off.